Well, good morning. It's great to see you all. Uh, good to have you with us this morning. Uh, I am well aware of Rick's schemes, by the way. Uh, when I looked at it this morning, I thought, man, I got a, a Brit has to stand up and uh, wish you guys happy 4th of July. So I feel kind of grudgingly that I should do that this morning. But, um, well, laugh it up, because uh, the joke's on you. The, of all of us gathered here this morning, there's only one guy who sounds like James Bond, right? So be careful what you wish for. Um, but happy July 4th weekend. I hope you have a great time uh, with your family. Um, I know my family is really looking forward uh, to just celebrating America. So uh, it, it's, it's going to be fun, um, and uh, we're really looking forward to that. Before I begin today, um, I just wanted also to say uh, a big thank you to you guys. Um, it has been a special experience for us to fly 5,000 miles across the other side of the world, and when we landed, we were met by family. Um, you've welcomed us, you've loved us, and I am really excited today to be able to uh, serve our church family by opening up God's Word for us. So I hope this morning that we're going to be encouraged, I hope that we'll be challenged, and in order to do that, we need God's help. So uh, let, let's pray now and uh, ask Him to, to help us. Let, let's pray. Father, Your Word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our paths. By it, we see the glory of the Lord Jesus. And so I pray that you would accompany the preaching of your gospel this morning with the power of your spirit, that we would leave this place this morning knowing that we have met with the living God and that we would be changed as a result. And I ask it, Father, for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. So, as, uh, as Rick said, we are continuing our series in the book of Titus this morning. Our series is entitled Grace Shaped Living. And those of us who were here last week thought about the truth that the grace of God doesn't simply forgive us, grace changes us. That's the big theme of the book of Titus. God's grace doesn't simply forgive us, grace changes us. The Apostle Paul is writing to his good friend and fellow church planter, Titus. And he says in verse 1 that our knowledge of the truth accords, it matches up, with godliness. As we know, uh, as we know that truth, sorry, this message of grace, as we experience its power in our lives, and uh, we change into the likeness of Jesus. We grow in godliness. So that's the goal that Paul kind of sets up for us today. That's the purpose of God in our lives if we are followers of Jesus. But we know, don't we, that it's one thing to know where we want to go, and it's another thing putting the steps in place to achieve that. Uh, it, all, all newly married people uh, want to have a long and happy marriage, but that doesn't always take place, does it? Every entrepreneur wants their business to be a success, but that doesn't always work out. And let's be honest, there are plenty of Christians, there are plenty of churches even, who know where they're supposed to go, but who never seem able to get there. Maybe you feel like that's you this morning. Well, if so, good news is on the way. There are so many Christians who feel as though they're standing still, they're unable to change, they know what God's will is, that they should live godly lives, but we never seem able to make it. And that we read in verse 5, is the reason why Paul is writing to Titus. If you look down with me in your Bibles, you'll see. Paul says, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained in order 
and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Paul wants the Cretan church to make it. He doesn't want them floundering. He doesn't want them to fail. You see, Paul was personally invested in this church. He and Titus had traveled to to Crete together. They had preached the gospel and people had become Christians. But for whatever reason, Paul has had to move on and he's left Titus in charge. And Titus has got a big challenge before him. This church is still young. It's got some big issues that need to be dealt with. And Paul is concerned that in their current state, they're not going to make it. They'll be like that small startup business that grows quickly and and then disappears overnight. So he writes to Titus to tell him what needs to happen next, what he needs to do for the church to to be put in order. And the first thing that Paul says is, appoint elders. Now, when I was in university, I used to uh, live with a group of non-Christian guys, um, which was a lot of fun. And one evening, uh, one of my friends, Nick, uh, said to me, hey, what are you doing tonight? Um, And I said, I'm afraid I can't hang out tonight because I'm going to an elders meeting. And Nick just looked at me like, and he said to me, who are the elders, right? Who are the elders? Because in Nick's mind, he's thinking, long beards, big robes, we're all going to sit, sit around in a circle and, who's going to, and decide who's going to take the ring to Mordor, yeah? That's, in his mind, what he's thinking is, who are the elders? And Paul knows that Titus is asking exactly the same kind of question, because he breaks off from his train of thought and outlines for Titus who the elders are, what kind of people they are, and what their responsibility will be. And so here's the summary statement for us this morning. Elders are grace-shaped men who teach the truth. Elders are grace-shaped men who teach the truth. Let's read together what Paul has to say from verse 6. He says, Appoint elders, if anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant, or quick-tempered, or a drunkard, or violent, or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. Leaders, by definition, are those who lead the way. They are those who people follow. And so Paul, very logically, makes the connection here for us. If the church is supposed to be headed towards godliness, elders must be men who are out front in that regard. Men who have already been through that process of change. Now let me pause for a moment before I continue, because I recognize that I've already said something that is highly controversial. By saying that elders are men. I'm saying it because I see it implied in this passage. Elders, Paul says there, are to be the husband of one wife, i.e. elders are to be men. Now, I don't really want to spend too much time on this particular point this morning because I don't actually think it's the central thrust of what Paul is getting at here. But I will say three things briefly on this issue because I know that some of you may be upset and have questions in your mind about it. So, firstly... 
Women are not disqualified from eldership because they're not as good as men. That's not what Paul is saying here. This has nothing to do with competency, and it has everything to do with men stepping forward and bearing the burden of responsibility within the church. That's the first thing to say. Secondly, if this does upset you, I'd love to talk to you about it. I'm not just going to throw this out there and then run away and hide. I'd love, to, I'd love to speak to you about it. I'd love to listen to your point of view. Uh, I hope that you'd like to listen to what I have to say too. But the third thing, and I think the most important thing that we need to remember when we come to these kind of issues, is that ultimately, as much as we listen to each other, ultimately we need to listen to God on this issue. It's his word that is what our final authority. It's his word that shapes how we're to live. And when we don't understand it, when we think that he's wrong, we have to ask him to help us to see how what he is saying is for our good and for his glory. So, elders, I submit to you this morning, are men, but I'd be happy to talk to you about it afterwards if necessary. But notice with me too that not all men qualify as elders. Only men who are above reproach are to lead God's people. That's what Paul says twice in verses 6 and 7. Elders' lives should not be open to accusation. No one should be able to say, well, that guy shouldn't lead the church because of this thing and that thing. You see, elders must not be hypocrites. That doesn't mean to say that they must be perfect, but their lifestyle must match with what they say they believe. They are do as I say and do as I do men, as we thought about last week. They are men who have been, been through and are continuing to go through that process of grace-shaped change. Now the question is, what does that look like? What qualifications should we look for when appointing the leaders of the church? In our culture, when we look for leaders, we usually look to see what skills they have. Are they successful in business? Do they have years of experience? How many trophies have they won? How many letters follow their name? Isn't it interesting that Paul doesn't mention any of those things? He couldn't care less what job someone does or how much money they've earned in their lifetime. He doesn't care if you're a banker or a binman. Both of those guys can be elders. What qualifies or disqualifies a man are his family, his character, and his teaching. We're going to look at those three things. His family, his character, and his teaching. So let's take a look firstly at an elder's family. Paul says in verse 6, an elder is to be the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Paul is looking for one thing when he looks at a guy's family. It's the quality of faithfulness. Is he faithful to his wife? He has made vows to her, hasn't he? But does he keep them? The idea here is more than just, uh, is he looking at pornography or not? Is he sleeping around? Paul is asking, is this guy totally committed to the woman he's married to? Is his whole life given to make sure that she is loved and protected and provided for and given opportunity to flourish? Is he faithful 
to her. And more than that, are his kids faithful too? You no doubt, no doubt noticed that phrase, his children are believers. That's caused people to ask a lot of big questions over the years. Does Paul really expect fathers to be responsible for their children's salvation? Is that what he's saying here? Now, if we know our Bibles well, we should, we should be questioning that at that point because we should know that elsewhere it says salvation is of the Lord. So how can Paul expect a dad to be responsible for his kid's salvation. And also, I mean, what happens if the guy has five kids and four of them are Christians and one isn't? Does that, does that disqualify him from being a leader in the church? Well, many of the translations that we use include a footnote here to indicate that the word translated believer literally means faithful. Notice perhaps in, in, in the margin of, of your Bible, you, you'll see there's a footnote there in saying, actually, faithful is the word that Paul uses here. Now, the word faithful can mean two things, can't it? The first is full of faith, i.e. believing, which is what the translator has gone for there. But the second thing... Uh, that faithful can mean is loyal, obedient, trustworthy. If you have a faithful dog, the dog follows you where you go. He's a faithful friend. And that, I think, is absolutely the meaning that Paul is driving at here. He doesn't expect elders to convert their kids, but he does expect them to raise kids who follow them. They're not to be wild or disobedient, not, to, not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, as the ESV puts it. So, when dad says, it's time to get up, the kids get up. When dad says, it's time to go clean your room, the kids go and clean their room. When dad says, it's time to go get ice cream, the kids go, well, no kid ever disobeys their, their dad when, when he says that, right? But you get the point. What we have here is a picture of faithfulness in the family. He is faithful to them, and they are faithful to him. Now, why is that important? Why does Paul go there to see the testing ground of eldership? Well, he tells us why in verse 7. He says this, An overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. The image of the steward tells us two things. Firstly, it tells us that the church does not belong to the elder. It is entrusted to him. God keep us from elders who believe that this is their church. By the time I am dead and gone and no one remembers my name, the church will still belong to Jesus Christ, who is the master and lord of the church. Elders are in their position of leadership as a position of trust. But the second thing this image of steward tells us is that the church is God's family. In those days, stewards were household managers. They looked after the family whilst dad was away. And so that's why Paul wants to see what a guy does with his own family. Is the man faithful to his own wife? Because he's about to be entrusted with the bride of Christ. Are his kids faithful to him? If not, then there's no way that God is going to entrust his children to the leadership of this man. 
So the first place we're to look when thinking about the qualifications for eldership is a man's family. Is it characterized by faithfulness? Now secondly, Titus was to look at a man's character. We read there in verse 7 these words. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. You know, the thing about character is that it travels with you. It's who you are. So elders are consistent both inside and outside the home. They don't have Sunday faces. Do you know what I mean by that? They don't put the mask on when they turn up for church on a Sunday. They're not one person for church and a completely different one in the office on Monday morning. The elder does not have a colleague who, when they find out that they're an elder, go, what, that guy? Really? You see, the elder does not think that he's better than others. He does not get angry easily. He doesn't drink too much. He's not someone who's physically or emotionally abusive. He's not motivated by money or power or position. But an elder is a guy who readily welcomes strangers. That's literally the meaning of hospitable there in verse 8. He loves what God loves. He's the kind of guy who thinks about what he's watching and listening to on the TV and the radio. And he'll often say things like, do you know, I just don't really want to fill my mind with that kind of stuff. He loves what God loves. He's a man who is not mastered by his habits. He's trained himself in godliness. And as a result, everyone sees it in his life. He's upright, everyone sees him. And he's holy. They see that he is set apart for God. Now, where does this come from, this kind of life? How does a man get this way? Do you know, you guys already know the answer. The knowledge of the truth accords with godliness. Look what Paul says in verse 9. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. This is a man who loves the gospel. This is a man who clings to the gospel. His Bible is well worn. He knows it inside and out. And he doesn't just read it so that he can sound impressive in small group or pass some exams in his seminary class. No, this word is first and foremost for him. Daily, he is reminded that he is a sinner and daily his gaze is lifted to see his king and savior. This is a man who recognizes the depth of love displayed towards him at Calvary, where the Son of God shed his own blood and breathed his final breath for him, bearing his punishment, removing his sin. This is a man who walks in the power of a new life, filled with the spirit of a resurrected Savior. This is a man who knows that he belongs to another. The great king rules on the throne of his heart. And so he submits himself to the authority of the God who by his spirit 
changes us into his likeness. Grace does not simply forgive us. Grace changes us. The gospel word is the source of the character of an elder, and his whole life is a testimony to the way in which grace has changed him. That is the second qualification of an elder. First, we look at his family. Second, we look at his character. The final qualification is found in the second half of verse 9, and it is the only competency-based qualification needed. Paul says, an elder must be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. This man must be able to teach what he has received. You know, there are many godly guys who faithfully love their wives and lead their families well, whose character is profoundly shaped by the gospel, but really have no idea how to teach that to other people. Which, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, it means that they are wonderful servants of Christ. They're fantastic people and members of the church who serve and edify and build up the body, but they're just not elders, and that's okay. You see, elders have to be able to tell others about the gospel in a way that helps people to change and, frankly, doesn't send them to sleep. That doesn't mean that elders have to be able to preach a 40-minute sermon or uh, can teach a 15-week class in seminary on the doctrine of God, but they probably do need to be able to lead a small group. They probably do need to know how, when they're sat with someone who's just sharing their life with them, they probably do need to know how to open the Bible and point them to Jesus and show them how the scripture is relevant to their lives. Now, we're going to think more about what uh, instructing people in godliness looks like, uh, instructing people in sound doctrine looks like next week as Rick takes us through the first part of chapter 2. But our focus this morning, and Paul's focus in chapter 1, is not there. The gospel must be taught through instruction, yes, but elders must also be able to rebuke those who contradict it. So let's spend our final few minutes here thinking about that. Why does Paul say that elders must be able to rebuke those who contradict the gospel? Well, the church in Crete had some pretty major problems. Listen to Paul describe it from verse 10. I'm just going to read us through verses 10 to 16. Paul says, There are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. I mean, Titus must have loved reading that right there and then. He's got to stand up and read this letter in the church, you know. How, how are they going to receive that? Um, you guys are evil beasts, lazy gluttons. That's going to go down well, right? But Paul says, therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. 
but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. Wow. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Wow. How strong is that, right? Couldn't Paul just say, hey, they're just a little bit back. No, he doesn't say that. Detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. There were people in this church who claimed to be Christians, but who would not submit themselves to the truth. Some of them were probably members of the Jewish religion, and they were part of this group called the Circumcision Party. Now, I think if I had been in the room when they were deciding what the name of their group was going to be, I'd have voted for something different. That does not sound like a party that anyone wants to go to. We must remember, though, that these were people who were members of the church. We often imagine the false teachers to be people who are sneaking around, kind of wearing Guido Fawkes masks and you know, having forked tongues and speaking in a creepy voice. But we, we want to imagine them like that because the truth, the reality, is far more uncomfortable for us. The reality is that these were normal churchgoers. They looked just like you and me. And they were causing trouble by teaching things that contradicted the gospel message. And, surprise, surprise, their lives showed it. They professed to know God, but their lives said otherwise. That's a scary thought, isn't it? That's a troubling thought. It should be for us this morning. What does your life say about what you believe? Well, the great news is that Paul is very clear Titus must show them grace. Do you see that? See that in the passage right there? Well, it's kind of hidden away. But Paul says in verse 13, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. Rebuke them sharply. Well, that doesn't sound gracious, does it? Does it? Well, one of the things I love to do when I'm not working, is to hang out with my son Jack. He's um, 18 months old and he loves playing outside and climbing on his climbing frame and running after his ball. But there is something that I've noticed as I, as I spend time with Jack. Sometimes Jack falls over, but he falls over for two very different reasons. You see, um, Jack loves playing and uh, uh, he loves running along and he's maybe one day he's running after his ball, you know, and he doesn't notice a bump in the road in front of him. So Jack's running, and the next thing that happens, bang, and he's on the floor crying. He's fallen over. And what, and what, what do I need to do? Well, I come running over there, and I pick him up, and I say, hey, Jack, it's okay, and I give him a kiss, and I rub it better, and I say, look, there's your ball. You know, keep running. Keep going in the direction that you're heading. And as Christians, we can be a little bit like Jack sometimes. We're, we're, we're going in the right direction. We're running after Jesus. We're heading towards godliness as God calls us to. And sometimes we just don't see the bump in the road that's just around the corner. And we run along, bang, and we're on the floor. And the job of the pastor at that point, the job of the elder, the job of all of us is to gather around that person and to comfort them with the comfort that we have received from Christ. Put our arm around them and say, hey, get back on your feet. Keep looking towards Christ. Keep going. Jack falls over like that. But there's also a second way that Jack falls over. Jack's out in the garden, 
playing. And daddy comes out and says, hey, Jack, it's time for bed. And Jack does this. And I say, ah, ah, ah. hey, come here. It's time for bed. And so, and so what I do, I, I walk over to him, and I take hold of his hand, and you'll never guess what happens next. Jack falls over. Now, what do I need to do at that point as a loving father? Is the right thing to treat him in the same way as the first instance? Do I pick him up and say, hey, don't worry, you can just keep playing. Go on, off you go. Do you know, if I do that every time, one, Jack gets very tired and cranky because he never gets his nap. And two, his character never grows. He never changes. The loving thing for me to do is the thing that I always do. I pick him up and put him over my shoulder and only take him to bed. Do you know, sometimes we need elders to do that for us. Sometimes we need them to lovingly, graciously rebuke us when we're doing things that we ought not to be doing. Now, I know you're going to find this hard to believe this morning, but in the past, I have often been rebuked by the elders of my previous church. I know, right? Me. Unbelievable. I think the reason is because I'm an idiot. There There were things in my life that I stubbornly refused to change. There were sins that I loved that meant that I neither honored Christ nor looked like him. And because my elders loved me, hear me on that this morning, because my elders loved me, they rebuked me. Sometimes it was just a quiet word. Sometimes it was a stern talking to. But you know, let me tell you about this one time. One time, it was far more serious than that. I was disciplined by the elders of my church for several months. And it was humiliating, and it was painful, and there were times when I got mad with them and I felt like a victim. But here's the thing. It was one of the best things that ever happened to me. There was a sin in my life that I thought I would never be rid of. It just ensnared me. And by God's grace, he placed elders over me who cared for me so much that they disciplined me in order that I might change. And here's my testimony. At the end of that time, I was different. I was free. I had grown more into the image of the Son of God who loved me, And shed his own blood for me, so that, as Paul says in Titus chapter 2, verse 14, Christ does that for me to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own who are zealous for good works. May God be pleased to make us such a people here at Cactus Campus. And may he also be pleased to use his elders to achieve that. So that we look like Christ. So that when people see us, they see him and come to know him for themselves. Four things briefly to close. And they will be brief, I promise you. 
four takeaways, four things that you can do as a result of this message. One, pray for our elders. You know, eldership is a high calling. It's something that God lays upon the godly men of the church. And Satan does not want us to achieve the purpose that God has for us. Satan does not want us to look like Christ to a world that is around us. And the best way that he can stop that from happening is to strike the elders, strike those who are to lead us to that place. So pray for our elders, pray for Pastor Jamie, pray for Pastor Rick, pray for those, our brothers, who serve us in leading us to change. Secondly, submit to our elders. Who here is perfectly Christ-like this morning? Don't put your hand up, that's a trick question. None of us. None of us perfectly look like Jesus. All of us still have changing to do. And from time to time, there may be a point in your life where an elder needs to come alongside you and rebuke you. And at that point, you have a decision to make. Will you just say, hey, I'm not going to listen to that. I'm just going to keep doing my own thing. Or will you recognize grace when it comes to you? Will you submit yourself to the loving rebuke of the elders so that you might change? Let me encourage you to do that. I would love nothing more than someone to knock on my office door and say to me, I've come here to tell you about something that's, that's wrong in my life so that you can rebuke me for it. I would love that. That is an evidence of the Spirit at work in his people. Submit to our elders. Thirdly, imitate your elders. Elders lead the way in terms of godliness. They are those who have been changed before us, whose knowledge of the truth accords with godliness. And so Paul says to the Corinthian church, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Aspire to be elders. Do you know, the church needs elders. This congregation needs elders to lead us forward. We've had some wonderful elders here at Scottsdale Bible Church, but maybe this morning, as you have listened to the qualifications of, the, of, of an elder, God has been pressing on your heart a desire to serve him in that way. Well, if that's true, we'd love to talk to you about it. We'd love to hear from you. We'd love to pray with you as you kind of explore whether or not this calling is placed upon your life. Because God uses elders so that his people change, so that we become more like Christ in order that our family, our neighbors, our colleagues, our friends see Jesus in us. God's desire is that many would see his glory and come to trust in Christ for themselves. And he uses the leadership of his elders to achieve that in his people. Why don't we pray before we come to the communion table? Let, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it speaks to us of your grace. We thank you so much that 2,000 years ago, the Son of God left the glory that was rightfully his and came to bleed and die on a cross for the sins of those who would trust in him. 
We thank you for the forgiveness that is found at Calvary. And we thank you too for the power, the resurrection power that is given to us who believe that changes us into the likeness of Jesus. Lord, we thank you so much for our elders. We pray that you would raise up elders in this congregation and that we would submit to their leading in order that we would become people who are changed by grace in order that Christ would be seen in us clearly. Father, we ask it not for our own good alone, but for the glory of your name, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory and the honor forever. So be at work by your spirit, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.